are here. We haven't met yet. My name is Dustin, one of the pastors here, and we've been working our way through the book of James this fall, and it's key to remember, even as I say working through James this fall, I look outside and I'm like, yeah, fall is done. Uh, we're, we're into winter now, but it's uh, key to remember here. James isn't writing this letter to explain to us how salvation by grace through faith works. He's assuming that his audience already knows that. He's writing to show us what a life changed by the gospel should look like. And he doesn't hold back. If you've been here with us working through these scriptures, he doesn't hold back. He tells it like it is. And so go ahead and turn to uh, chapter 5 in James. In the opening of chapter 5, James uses some pretty harsh language. And imagery, as we'll see together today as we work through the passage. Think Old Testament prophet kind of language and warning. Most scholars think the people James is speaking to here in this passage um, are likely speaking to or referring to non-believers in this section of Scripture. You'll remember James in general is written to believers But when we get down here to this part, scholars think that James is speaking specifically to those who are not believers for a couple of reasons. We see evidence of a couple of reasons why scholars think this is true. Number one, there's no call to repentance that James would typically use with the believers that he's been speaking to. And so no real call to repentance. And that in and of itself might not be enough. But secondly, James often uses brothers and sisters kind of language when he's talking to these believers he's writing to. And that is not included here in this section. And so he likely wants these believers he's writing to. Remember the whole letter of James, these believers he's writing to. He likely wants these believers that he's writing to to know that God isn't okay with this group of people that he's going to be talking to and wants to know, wants these believers to know what a fatal trap it is to love money. And so let's get into James chapter 5, verse 1 here. James says this, Come now, you rich. And if we can pause Right there, we didn't get very far, right? (laughs) So who's James speaking to right here? The what? The rich. rich. Yeah, James is speaking to the rich. There's the target audience, the rich. Who are the next few lines for? The rich. And at this point, if you're anything like me, what we typically try to think of is a rich person, this passage might apply to. That's where our brains kind of go to of like, okay, well, let me kind of get in my head a rich person that needs to hear this. And so if we can just go down that path for a second, you guys take a second and just think of someone in your lives that you know who is rich. Just get in your head. You don't have to say them out loud. (laughs) Might be kind of awkward. See, I bet none of us thought of ourselves as a rich person, right? I bet not many of us 
Uh, if any of us here in the room was like, oh, rich person. Oh, yeah. <laughs> this guy. <laughs> me, that's me. <laughs> See, seldom, if ever, do we think of ourselves as rich, regardless of how much money we have, regardless of how many possessions we have, regardless of what kind of wealth we may have. And I wonder why this is. Why is it? And, and we could say immediately, well, there's probably some, some blinders on, and we can understand there's a spiritual element to what's going on here. And aside from that, here's why I think we always don't think of ourselves. It's because we can always think of someone richer that we could point to than we are. All right, when we think about who's rich, we go, well, obviously it's not me. It's that person that I know that has a nicer car than I have, that, that has a bigger house than I have, that goes on more vacations than I do. And we think of someone else and we think these kinds of passages are about them. No matter how much money you have, there's always someone richer, right? Well, except maybe for one person in the world, right? Uh, whoever that one person is in the world, and magazines and studies release those names, and the Bill Gateses and, and the Jeff Bezoses, they're always really close up there at the top of the list. And aside from them, they, we could always point to someone else that's richer. But is it possible, can we just consider the possibility that we've been blinded to the reality that most all of us here may be rich. What if I told you that really you are in the same category as Bill Gates or Bezos or Musk? And that just sounds silly, right? Well, what if I told you you were in the same category as them? That just sounds silly. Like, I wonder where he's going with this because there's no way I'm in the same category with those people. Well, there are several of these calculators out there and online that compare your current income to those in the rest of the world. And see, not so much your income compared to the people you work with or not so much your income compared to the person down the street or the one that has a nicer car than you do, but on the global scale. How does your income compare to the global scale? Because the gospel, the scriptures, it's a global message. So how does your income compare to the rest of the world? And many of you kind of know where this is going already. You're like, oh boy, okay, here we, here we go. Let me fill you in on how your income compares to the rest of the world. And if you've heard some of these statistics, this is not going to be too shocking. But if you haven't, this, is, this may be a paradigm shift for, for us today. Winter Park Resort, one of the biggest employers in our area, um, they are starting people, if you don't know, around $20 an hour this year. So if you're looking for a job, if you don't have a job, uh, consider that. It's a great wage. It's a great hourly wage. And so if we do the math, if you consider uh, what a starting salary is at, at Winter Park Resort as being around $20 an hour, of course, depending on the job, that's close to $40,000 a year. Wow, right? $40,000 a year. Get this. If you started at Winter Park Resort and you had a $20 an hour wage, that would put you in the top 
3% of the world in terms of wealth. Wow, right? The top 3% in terms of wealth, 3% richer than 97% of people in the world. You and Bill Gates and Jeff Bezos, right? I told you guys you were in good company, right? The top 3% in the world. You and those guys. Wow. That puts you, and I just, I, you guys know I like to use a visual um, most weeks, not every week, but that puts you, if you're making $40,000 a year, guess where that puts you making 14 times the global average. 14 times, because I think most of us think of our wage and we kind of put ourselves somewhere in the middle of the pack, right? We kind of put ourselves, well, there's probably more people, uh, probably 50%, no, top 3%. And so that puts you, again, $40,000 a year making 14 times the global average. And so I just did this in terms of quarters. And so let's just consider this is the global average here. It's, it's one quarter. And here, if you make $40,000, here's, here's how much more yours is than the global average. Wow. <laughs> I'm not done yet. <laughs> there. What? Who knew $40,000 was so much money, right? And maybe you're like, well, see, I got you here, Dustin. I don't make even that much. I considered that. <laughs> if you made half that, if you just made half that and, and, and you made $20,000 in one year, you made $20,000, that was your annual income, guess what? You're in the top, still, the top 10% on the global scale. If there were 10 people sampled from around the globe and they lined them up by income, guess who's number one? You at $20,000. Church, we are rich, right? And I know there's tons of other factors. If, if we had uh, an economist, he could come point to, well, cost of living and a lot of different factors that, that can be factored in that can make it look worse than it is. But church, we are rich. And so when we see passages in the scriptures about wealth and riches, don't fall for the trap of assuming it's about someone else that you could think of that has more than you. Okay, tune your ears. Well, what's James' message to these rich people? Let's continue here. I'll continue reading since, well, I'll start from where I did. I only read four words. Chapter 1. I mean, sorry, chapter 5, verse 1. Come now, you rich, weep and howl. Wow, what imagery, right? Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. What a start to the morning, right? <laughs> what a start to the morning. Weep and howl. The imagery here is wailing, an uncontrollable wailing. And you're like, well, why? Well, we just read why. There are miseries heading your way. Well, the next question we should ask is what miseries? I'm glad you're wondering and I'm glad you're curious because we're going to continue reading here to see what miseries James is talking about. And so let's 
continue in the next uh, few verses. Verse 2. Here's why James says, Those who are rich should weep and howl, because their misery is coming. Well, what miseries? Verse 2. Your riches have rotted, and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you, and will eat your flesh like fire. Those is pretty harsh imagery and language, right? Rust and corrosion, literally burning the flesh off of bones. Wow. I thought of the scene in um, Raiders of the Lost Ark where faces melted off. Yeah, that was what I was thinking of. And so what are these miseries? If we're just recapping here, what are the miseries? He says, your riches have rotted and your clothes are moth-eaten. In other words, your riches are gone and your clothes have holes in them and not the cool kind of holes. Corrosion from your riches will burn away, eat at your flesh, and that will be evidence against you is what he says. So the next question we should ask is, well, what? Well, evidence of what? Uh, well, our riches corroding away our flesh, evidence of what? James is, what is James accusing them of? And we can continue here. Uh, let's go on to, uh, I'll, I'll read three again. We kind of stopped midway through three. And I'll read down through verse six, which will be uh, as far as we go in James today. And so verse three, your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. And so what we just read there, again, if we're tracking with the passage, remember we're walking through this passage in context. James is talking to this group of rich people and he's saying, hey, wail, mourn, scream out, because miseries are coming your way. And then he lays out these three accusations. Number one, here's the three accusations. They're just coming straight out of the, verse, the verses here. They stored up or hoarded money, which we should make a side note. This is not in any way saying there's, some, there's anything wrong with saving money. It's not what he's saying. It says they stored up, they hoarded money by not paying someone they owed. So how did they store up money? What was the method by which they came about their wealth? Well, it's by not paying someone they owed. In other words, the money they had was, not, was, was at someone else's expense. The money they had was at someone else's expense. They didn't come about their money honestly. And, and as we look at a passage about harvesters and people that mow your fields, I think it's easy again for us to see a disconnect. Because <laughs> again, you're like, well, maybe he's talking about the farmer down the road, but not me. Don't got no crops here, right? But he's saying the wealth that they accumulated, it was at someone else's expense. And I thought of 
well, what could be the application for us? How could we be guilty of something similar? And I begin to think the ways we come about our money in, in dishonest ways. Anyone ever not fully done the job you were supposed to do, but still took the check anyway? No, nobody? Okay, we can go on. Anyone ever slacked off at work but still took the full payment from your boss or company? <laughs> yep, I bet all of us. That's taking money from someone else that's not rightfully yours. That's coming about your money uh, by dishonest method, right? And while different from the example that James gives, eerily similar. Second accusation James makes against this group about how they used their money. It says they lived in luxury and spent a lot of money on themselves. And I thought, you know, we don't really need to spend much time on that one, right? Because I think that when we begin to examine, we can go, yep, I think, I think we could all chuck ourselves up to guilty on that one. Third accusation James makes against this group and in the way they used their money, they neglected those that they should have taken care of. The workers, right? It's not just that he held back money uh, from them. It's not just that he came about it by a dishonest means. He also didn't take care of them. And they cried out against him. And I didn't have this in the notes, but it's something I learned this week uh, in verse 4 when it says, the, harvesters have, uh, the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. That may not make a lot of sense. What it means, the equivalent of that is the Lord of armies, the Lord of angel armies. And all of a sudden you get this picture that God is going to make things right at some point. They're crying out to the God that has an army behind him. It's a scary thought. They didn't take care of those they should have taken care of. Instead of spending more money on themselves, they should have taken care of those around them who needed it. And we have all kinds of excuses for this one. What for why we don't use our resources to take care of people that have needs? I think the easiest excuse for not helping others with our resources, again, if you're anything like me, is that we say things like, well, they should help themselves first. I mean, look at them. They should help themselves first. Or this one. Well, they're going to have to sleep in the bed they made. Right? Uh, they're going to have to sleep in the bed they made. That's the life they've chosen. Or that's, they've, they're the ones that have gotten themselves to that point, And they're going to have to sleep in the bed they made before I offer any help. And when we say things like that, it shows we really haven't grasped the heart of the gospel yet. Right? That while we were still sinners, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. I'm so grateful God didn't look at me and say, well, Dustin, he's going to have to help himself before I do anything. Right? I'm so glad God didn't look at me and say, Dustin is such a sinner. He's just going to have to sleep in the bed he's made. He doesn't deserve my help just yet. Right? 
But, but isn't that what we level against others? We love God's grace upon us, but we're not so willing to share it with others. So ultimately, get this. These three accusations that James lays at the feet of these people who he calls rich, they're a reflection of a heart that, get this, loves money. And that's where we're going with all this. They're a reflection of a heart that loves money. And this is what the scriptures clearly warn us against, the love of money. Money in and of itself isn't evil. We know the verse often gets misquoted, right? That money is the root of all evil, right? We hear that. Money is the root of all evil. Money, money, right? It's not what the scriptures say. Money isn't evil in and of itself. It's not wrong to have it. It's not even necessarily wrong to have a lot of it or to save an appropriate amount of it. But scripture warns us against loving it. Go ahead and turn in your scriptures uh, to 1 Timothy chapter 6. I want us to see this and uh, put our eyes on it. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 10. First Timothy 6, verse 10 says this, for the what? The love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. And so we misquote it as well to say money is the root of all evil. No, it's not what it said. The love of money is the root of all different kinds of evils. It is through this craving which that's really what it is, right? When we get down to the bottom, it's a craving for more. No matter how much we have, it's a craving for more. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. And when I think about the landscape of where we are, the fact that most all of us, unless you're in that season of life where uh, you would say, well, I'm just a student at Timberline, or I'm just, I'm just up here seasonally, I don't even make 20K. Just understand you're still in this demographic where even, even your school has cost lots of money, and we're in these phases, and so try not to write yourself off of this one, but we say, okay, well, in the place where we live, and I'm not complaining about the place where we live, it's just the reality, uh, the culture we live in here, again, likely all of us are in close to that top 10% in global income, and so we have to look at this verse and say, okay, those that have wandered away from the faith in our culture, there's a great chance it has something to do with this. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Hebrews 13, 5 says this, keep your life free from the love of money. It doesn't say keep your life free from money. It says keep your life free from the love of money. And this next line, just a gut punch. I don't know if it is for you guys, but it says, and be content with what you have. Oh, man. See, the first part, keep your life free from the love of money. I'm like, ah, oh, I got that one. And then it says, and be content with what you have. So if you find yourself on the road of trusting riches and possessions and 
find yourself loving your possessions to the point you're neglecting others. Hear James's message, that road leads to suffering. That's what he's saying. That's a road that's going to lead to great suffering. And so when we get down to the bottom here and into the application, here's what this is not. Uh, here's, here's what this kind of passage, here's what this kind of sermon, this is what they're not about. They're not about guilting us into generosity. Because we've heard sermons like that, right? Where, where pastors stand up here and they, they preach a message like this, but the whole, well, where they get down to is about guilting you into generosity. And actually, I don't think you can guilt anyone into generosity. You can guilt them into giving. You cannot guilt them into generosity, right? We can't produce generosity in others or ourselves. We can't produce generosity in ourselves or others. See, generosity is only born in a heart that's experienced generosity, right? You can give a ton of money and not be generous. Generosity is only born out of a heart that's experienced generosity. And you're like, okay, well... How have we experienced generosity? Listen to this. 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Paul is talking about giving and generosity. And he puts it in this context. He's talking about giving and generosity. And he points, guess where? To Christ. He says, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Again, we talk about grace as getting something that you don't deserve getting way more than you would ever deserve. And so he's saying, hey, you know how much you've received from Christ. You know the great grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. And if your brain immediately goes to money, that's... that. That has been said with passages like this. Jesus intends for you to get rich. That's not what we preach here. Don't believe that's what the scriptures teach either. Just listen to this. How we experience generosity. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. That though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor. So that you by his poverty might become rich. See when by his spirit we realize and come to grips with just how generous God has been with us through Christ, all of a sudden something crazy starts to happen. It'll begin to loosen our grip on the possessions that we have. The reality of what Jesus has given us and what we have in Christ will begin to melt away our love for money. The beauty of the gospel will begin to produce in us a generosity which will begin to grow in our hearts. And so the application here as we spend time talking through this passage in James, again, I love that we teach through books here because if, uh, if we were just cherry picking, we could skip passages like this because they're uncomfortable. But when we teach through books, we get to passages like this. 
and we let the Lord use them in our lives. And so the application here, I'm not pointing to some amount or percentage or action steps towards generosity because that's frankly what some of us are looking for. Okay, okay, I came here, I got hit in the face with some Bible, and now just tell me what I need to do to be okay. Just tell me what percentage it is, and then I'll, then I'll be good, and I'll walk out of here feeling good about myself because I've kept the law, right? I'm not going to do that. I'm just going to point us to the cross of Christ this morning. I'm just going to point us to the cross of Christ. See, when we think about money, our question is always, it seems to relate to, well, tell me what the amount is. What's the least amount I can give and be okay? Right? Isn't that, what, isn't that how we, tell me what the least amount I can give and be okay. I'll give that and then I'll be okay. I'll check that off my box. And while we can certainly go to some passages and see some principles uh, around percentages of giving, the scriptures seem to over and over again point us to sacrificial giving. And when we say, well, what's the least amount I can give and be okay? That's not sacrificial, right? Right? And so we're not looking at a certain percentage this morning anyway and, and going, well, give this and you'll be okay with God. We're going, hey, is it possible that we could just look at what Christ has done for us? And absorb that and, and understand the great generosity that has been shown to us, the great grace that has been shown to us, and then just let that begin to spill over into each area of our lives, into how we manage our money, into how we give of our time and our energy, that because we understand the great grace and forgiveness and, and mercy we've been shown, that that begins to spill out into our lives so that we give as a reflection of how much we've received, Right? I want to point us to the cross of Christ where Jesus gave sacrificially that we might be rich in him. And I would say may the finished work of Christ propel us toward being a generous people with what we've been given in every area, right? And all resources uh, that we've been given, our time, our gifts, and yes, includes monetary, but it goes so much beyond that. And I'm not just talking about what you put in the basket, right? I think that's where we get shortchanged. Of uh, if, if you've got some kind of background where you've had pastors or preachers who have abused this role and used it as a platform just to pad the offering basket, I hope you can hear that's not what's going on here. I hope you can see the difference. And if you think I'm trying to guilt you into giving, then, then please don't give this morning. Please just pass it by. It's not what's going on here in the scriptures and not what's going on here from the front. What the scriptures want to point us to is the greatness of Christ, the sufficiency of Christ in his sacrifice, and allowing that to impact how we live our lives. That's what James is pointing to. Let's go to him in prayer. Just want to give us just a few moments of silence for you to begin to interact with the Lord about the scriptures that we've read, about these warnings James has given to this rich group of unbelievers. Just allow some of 
the truth we've talked about to wash over you this morning. we would come to you in prayer this morning acknowledging that at the core your desire is not to add more law to our lives to add more requirements to our lives in order to be right with you that Jesus you have fulfilled the law and the prophets on our behalf taken all of our selfishness, all the ways we've misused money, and you've taken that upon yourself on the cross and how freeing that is. And then you gave us your perfect record, Jesus, so that now when the Father looks at us, he sees Jesus, your sacrificial act on the cross, and not our own record of selfishness. And then, Jesus, you came out of the grave. You didn't stay in the grave. You resurrected, and now you live our, your life through us, empowering us toward obedience by your Spirit. Lord, by your Spirit, by us abiding in you, I pray the fruit of that is generosity and sacrifice, not to earn anything just as an overflow of who you are and what you've already done for us. I pray, Lord, that by your Spirit, our church family here, that the the evidence would be there of a people who have experienced your great grace and generosity. And that it's evident by the way we live our lives. Lord, I pray that you would help us be good stewards with the things that you've given us. And it goes way beyond money. Lord, I thank you that when we open your word, it's not all tulips and roses. Some passages are just hard. Some passages are deep and lots to grapple with. I pray, Lord, that by your spirit, you would just speak to us as believers. We thank you for the work that you were doing in us. We thank you for the things that you're doing in us as a church, as a whole as well. Lord, I thank you so much that we can come together and and, and not just have a full room as if it's just about numbers. I thank you that we can come together and exalt you and lift you up Lord, look back to the cross and the resurrection and go, wow, how incredible that is. As we close out in song, Lord, I pray that you would continue to move in us, whether it be something from uh, the passage we've read, whether it be something from one of the songs we've sung or the song we're about to sing. Lord, would you continue to do a work within us?
as we eat and drink together and as we sing, as we confess your greatness, Jesus. We pray these things in your name.